last week I recorded a full podcast that I then scrapped. Last week was because the sound was no good. This week it was because it was just a shitty podcast. I wasn't very clear. I don't know. Maybe it took a couple of days after coming back from vacation to shake out the cobwebs of drinking these beers every day. In Spain, they actually have gluten-free beer everywhere, something they don't have in Portugal. I don't know if it's a good thing or not. Beer is kind of heavy, but it also has less alcohol, so you can drink a lot of it and not lose your mind. You know, wine, if you're a fast drinker like me, it's a little dangerous because, you know, pound three, four glasses of wine in 15 minutes and, uh, you know, it has a big effect. Whereas beer, you can kind of just drink all day and be fine. So anyway, I shook the cobwebs off last couple of days. I was fasting yesterday, but I deleted that podcast. It was garbage. Hopefully this will be a better one. So we were in Spain for 10 days and I got put up some food pictures on Twitter obligatory. The food in Spain is good. I think it's better than Portugal. I'll probably get deported for saying that, but I just think it's, they have better food and just a lot of places you can just walk around in and find a hole in the wall, at least in like the big cities like Valencia, where we're at. We didn't go to Madrid or uh, Barcelona because we've been there. So we did Cazares, which is this like old town that a friend of ours is from. And that was cool. And then we went to Cuenca, which is a small town, a little bit southeast of Madrid. And there's these hanging houses. We saw that in this museum, which was cool. We saw a cool museum in, in Cazares. I'll talk about that in a, in a minute. But then we went to Valencia, and Valencia had great food. It's kind of a happening city, a little touristy for my taste, but it was nice. And then we went on the overnight ferry to Mallorca, which was sort of the, the goal of the trip, was to hang out with our friends in Mallorca who rented a house for a few days. We were actually there four days. And the overnight ferry was my idea because I just hate the airport travel industrial complex so much that I was like, let's just do a road trip and we can take a boat to Mallorca. So we did, but it's an overnight ferry. It's seven hours because even though it's only like 200 miles, 250 miles, it's a slow ferry. And Heather has this thing. It's, I want to say it's, it's not really a phobia. I would say it's more of like a psychosis and it's not germ related so much as just she gets easily grossed out by sleeping in, you know, hotel rooms that aren't like the highest of the high end. And so she brings this like cloth sarong that she lays down on the pillow and the blanket so that it doesn't touch her body. And she's disgusted that Sasha and I can just go and sleep if it's reasonably clean, like any normal human being and not flip out about it. But the upshot of that is that she did not book an overnight cabin on this shitty ferry because the cabin would be gross even by Sasha and my standards, though I would have probably put some clothing down and gotten some sleep. But the result of that is that we were just like kind of in the lounge with, with the lights on and this like shitty music playing and these other people who were too poor to buy a cabin just snoring away. This guy was like, you know, two booths over just with the worst snoring. And another guy was like two booths from him snoring. It was gross. You know, these guys just, you know, and, and I'm trying to kind of sleep, but I'm like, I don't want to pass out because I don't want someone to swipe my bag with my computer in it. So I fell asleep with the Frisbee as my pillow my hand in my bag because it was sort of helping stabilize me from rolling off the booth. Sasha fell asleep. I probably slept three hours. Heather slept not at all. And we just idiots like sleeping in our shorts and socks just out in this lounge with the lights on. It was really, I mean, it's just unbecoming of someone 51 years old to be living like that. But it's what we did. Got to Mallorca that morning and Mallorca was incredible. Like the house they rented was just Incredibly nice. I'll put some photos in the uh, in the notes. 
And the people we shared it with, I'm not going to mention him by name because I, I, I asked him if I could tell the stories that he told me. He said, no problem, as long as it's not by name. So I said, okay. But this dude, he's like five years older than me, 55, 56. And he's best described as like a professional international partier. He's like British, a little bit French, lived in Argentina for a while. And just he's just a guy who's cooler than you. He's cooler than me. He's cooler than you. He doesn't try to be he's a very humble, nice guy. He doesn't really... He's not like a boastful guy or trying to be cool. He just is the cool guy who's the international professional life of professional partying. And he told me two stories. Very nice guy. Hilarious dude. But low-key hilarious. Like you wouldn't really realize it until you get to know him a little bit. But one story was from a couple of years ago. And he was in a WhatsApp group with a bunch of... He's a, you know, they have a kid too. Their kid's eight. Sasha's 10. Played a bit. It's good in the pool. And... This guy was in the WhatsApp group with these moms and dads, you know, whatever, that basic school, private school WhatsApp group. And accidentally, and he, he swears he has no idea how this happened, but texted out a porn, a clip of a porn to the whole group. But it wasn't just like regular porn. It was like, I don't remember what he said, like midget or some very fetishy, very disturbing uh, clip. <laughs> But he didn't know that he texted it out because he hadn't checked. And he only found out when he went to the, whatever the group meeting was or whatever. And told me that he's not, he's no longer, those people are no longer in touch with him anymore. He didn't seem to care that much, but he, he swears it was a total accident. has no idea how it got there. And the other story he told me was from like two days before they met us in Mallorca. He went to a wedding of a good friend of his and he probably knew like 20 or 30 people out of the couple hundred that were there. And one of the guys uh, said, do you want a tab of acid? Do you want some acid? And he said, uh, no. And then later on said, okay, sure. So he took it and he said he found himself being much more sociable than usual, talking a ton to people and really getting into these conversations. But then he made the mistake of smoking a J and rendered himself completely incoherent and unable to follow the basic conversation anymore. Uh, and he said it was a very, very hellish experience. It's like two days before we saw them. He's 55. He's at a wedding of old friends and he's you know, tripping his nuts off. Uh, and I found that uh, very amusing, but a good dude. And uh, it was fun to hang out with them. Just a, just a, just a very relaxing, chill couple of days. But I, I want to talk about one day, one thing we did, which was kind of interesting was uh, we we're supposed to go to this wine tasting on Tuesday, a week ago today. And um, Heather booked it and set it up through a friend of hers. And I thought like everybody was going to go. It was a couple that we were with and, and us and, and maybe the couple, uh, the woman's brother was there for a few days and he was a cool guy and he was maybe going to come, maybe even bring the kids to just like give them a snack. But everybody bailed, it turned out. So then Heather was like, oh, I said I would go. So then I had to go because Heather had arranged it. And so I couldn't get out of it. But I was dreading it because wine tastings are usually pretty boring. And one of us had to drive and then we we're going to this dinner. So the other thing we did was we booked this dinner like half an hour away on the island. Marca's pretty big. It's, it's a beautiful, incredible island. So many beautiful old Spanish towns on this island that you, it's unbelievable. Like it's a very upscale place, at least a lot of it. So we're going to this restaurant that her, her wine friend had recommended. And these wine people, they know like the only reason I know about Lotus Asylum in Vegas is through... Heather and her wine people. And now I've told everybody in the fantasy industry, now they go, but it's you know the best Thai restaurant in the United States. And I wouldn't have known about it except that they know about it through the wine business because apparently German Rieslings go really well with Thai food. And, and Lotus has these really good German Rieslings, which I now order when I go to Lotus. 
courtesy of these wine people who really know their food and wine. So it was a wine friend of hers recommended a restaurant. It was like this prefix, multi-course, whatever, which isn't really my thing, but said it'll be our most memorable meal, one of the most memorable meals in Europe. And so I said, yeah, let's do it. So it was only Heather and me. And I was looking forward to the restaurant. I was kind of dreading the wine tasting, but I had to go to both. So we go to the wine tasting and I'm expecting this like, you know, old school, like multi-generational Mallorcan family farm where, you know, they've been making wine for 200 years and we're going to hear about all the soil and all that bullshit. But we get there and it's in the middle of this rural place, but it's like this modern building, glass, steel, and concrete building. And I'm like, what is this? Like, this is not even, isn't that, this isn't rustic or charming at all, really. So we knock, there's no one there. And the guy greets us suddenly and he's all like scraped up from a bike accident. He's a tall Danish guy. And I guess he runs, owns it, runs the winery, lets us in. And we're standing there and Heather starts talking to him and he starts talking about the location and some details about it. And we're just standing in the entryway on the concrete floor. And I'm thinking, okay, like let's get the show on the road. Like let's start drinking some of this wine, but they're just talking and it's going on five minutes. I mean, imagine you let's, you know, you have a guest come over and they're in your hallway standing and you don't like seat them on the sofa and offer them, you know, water or wine or beer or whatever. We're just standing there and it's like 10 minutes, it's like 15 minutes, like 20 minutes. And he's going on about, in deep in great detail about the winery that he built and what happened with it. And, and I'm looking at Heather a little bit annoyed at first, like, come on, like stop talking to this guy. Just let's get seated and get this done so we can go to this dinner. But then after like 15, 20 minutes, I'm realizing this guy is actually crazy and he means everything he says. It's just not the usual bullshit about the soil and the this and that. It's like, he's like going deep about this stuff and how he only waters on one side and it, makes the roots have to dig deeper and get much more robust and bring up much more fruit. And he's going into all this detail and I'm starting to get curious about this guy. Who is this Danish guy in Mallorca with this modern winery that he just got into wine in 2015. And he's talking like this saying he wants to make the best wine in the world in this place where it's not like a serious winemaking region. I don't think it's not like, you know, Spain's best area or France or Italy or one of those places. So then he takes us down still, doesn't serve us any food or wine, then takes us down into like the place where they make the wine, all the tanks and this crazy equipment. And I've never seen anything like this. The most modern, high-tech, expensive wine. You know, I've been to a bunch of wineries in Portugal through Heather and they're like rustic, even if they're like, you know, pretty, pretty big investment into them, they're pretty rustic. This thing looked like uh, Gus Frayn's basement in Breaking Bad. I mean, this was like a legit, legit operation with all these metal pipes going to all these different places. He was telling me this one machine just to filter the wine costs 300,000 euros that he uses, but it's all organic wine. And it's, I mean, it was just, he was just going in such great detail about the process by which they kind of purify this wine and, and you know, regulate the temperature and can track it on these monitors and know the chemical composition and how many, you know, how much of this is, is in it and how much of that is in it it's measured and, and monitorable from, you know, from Denmark even he's a crazy person. Like this was like a mad scientist with a lot of money. I guess he had made money doing some businesses in Denmark and he's doing it organic and rigorously, but then puts like all the science in. So I don't know if he'll succeed, but it was actually very cool and very interesting. And then he finally served us the wine and I thought it was good. And I don't even like wine that much. I thought it was pretty good. It was organic. It wasn't like that headachey kind of wine. I liked a bunch of them. And uh, I told Heather we should join his club. It's a thousand bucks a year. And you get 43 bottles, um, which 
you know, it's like 23 bucks a bottle, which is probably like double what we'd pay on average in Portugal. But that means we're paying like 500 extra for the whole year, but it gets delivered to us. And I don't know, it just seemed like something worth getting involved in because um, I've just rarely seen somebody that serious about anything. It's just a crazy person would say, I'm going to make the best wine in the world. Be like saying, I'm going to be the best tennis player in the world or something. It's, it's just, you don't, you don't think that it's too ambitious. It's unrealistic, but he was serious in the facility. I'm telling you, it was like uh, the breaking bad meth lab. It was, it was incredible. So that was actually fun. And then we went through some nice towns, finally get to this very beautiful setting, this restaurant in this very nice town for the prefix menu. But then we, it's like 8.15, our reservation, we get there and they're like, have a welcome drink or I don't know, it was a welcome drink because I think we had to pay for it. But we sat out on this like nice deck um, and I'm like, okay, I guess they're gonna, we'll have a drink for five minutes where they get our table ready. But five minutes turns to 15, turns to 20. And I'm like, look, like I'm ha happy to have this drink but I kind of want to get seated. I, first of all, we drank a bunch. That dude never fed us. I'm ready to eat. And now I'm having another drink and no food. And then just to top it off, like someone's trying to troll me, these two dudes sit like at the table in front of us and start groping each other and making out. These like long, one dude was a long haired dude. The other dude was this balding dude. They're going at it pretty hard with their clothes on. I mean, I, I couldn't do much more with their clothes on than they were doing. I'm thinking someone is trolling me here. Like what? I'm not able to eat. They're not letting me sit down. I'm seeing this, uh, this scenario in front of me. So finally they seat us at like nine and I find out it's mostly vegetarian. So it's like a, they're trolling me more and more. There was some fish and squid and stuff in it. Food was actually really good. The, the, it was creative and you know, I like vegetables as a snack. It's not really a meal for me, but uh, as much as anybody, but it took more than three hours. So at 1215, I was still hungry. And I, I wasn't drinking because I had to drive home, but I was still hungry and I'd had dessert and then they offered us a cheese plate, which I very much wanted, but I was like sweating, was hot as hell there. I was like, we just got to get the fuck out of here. Like, I, I'm sorry, we can't have the cheese plate. Like we got to go. So that was a rough experience. I, I don't want to crap on it too much. The food was actually pretty good. And it was like 220 euros for the two of us, which is expensive for like a five course tasting with Heather drank a bunch of wine. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't crazy for what it was, but that was, that was kind of hellish. So that I was dreading the wine that ended up being really fun and interesting. And I was looking forward to the dinner and that was uh, hell. I learned something though from the dinner. I don't, I'm not doing the prefix thing. And we did another one in Valencia a couple of days later on the way back. And that was like an hour and a half and it was a lot cheaper. And Sasha was there and they had some steak, tiny piece of steak at the end. So it was a little bit better, but even that it's like, you know, I don't, I don't really get it. Like, I don't need to like admire this little teeny creation you made for me with this special sauce, with this special preparation of the vegetable and the way it's been steamed just so. I, I don't give a shit about that. Like, honestly, I want a steak cooked medium rare, rare. I like oysters. You know, it's like food or, or I like Chinese food. I like Asian food, like good Chinese, Szechuan, spicy, lots of different dishes to sample or Nepalese food, which is like Indian food. But a little different. It's really good here. Like, I don't need some bullshit owed to the nuance of the, the chef's talent or something like that. I just don't care. And you know, it's actually interesting because I cook a lot of stuff and I make weird stuff because sometimes I'm just, I'm kind of obsessed with not wasting leftovers. So I'll have like, oh, there's an eggplant in the fridge we haven't used and a zucchini and there's uh, two tomatoes that are kind of soft, but they can be cooked and they're, you know, and I'll make weird stuff with that. And sometimes it comes out not that great, but sometimes it comes out really good. And I feel like I'm making my strange creative 
tasting menu stuff for, you know, whoever happens to be there. Usually it's Heather and Sasha, but you know, for friends over whatever. I, and that's how you do it. It's kind of cool. Oh, good job. You know, you made the, you, you salvage this stuff, but to have everyone like wait around and prepare it, like this is a thing you're going to do on purpose. What's the point? You know? So I'm done with that. You know, I'm done with that tasting, the fancy tasting menu stuff. So that was that. But uh, one other thing that was interesting about, about the trip is, you know, I take a lot of photos and I, it's been great, like just going through Europe and just, it just gives me a lot of things to look at. But lately I've been taking a lot of photos of inside museums. I've been taking photos of the art. Some of them are cool with it. Some of them don't really like it and make me stop. But I never used to like museums at all. But a couple things happened. And especially on this trip, it, it really dawned on me. So first off, we were outside of Caceres, which is a small city really beautiful old town, like so many in Spain and Portugal and Europe in general. But this one was really nice. And there was this museum. It wasn't really in Casares. It was in another town nearby. And it was like in this desert area where these natural sculptures were somewhere. And they built the museum near there out in the desert. And it was a really old building. They put the museum in this. They didn't build the museum. The museum was like put in this super old, I don't know what it is, like farm buildings or something, but they're a couple hundred years old. And you're out in this desert and you're wandering around. You're already kind of tripping. Like I was just noting the difference. Like you're already in a weird state of mind because you're in this middle of nowhere in Spain, in the desert, in this weird like old building. And you're going in to look at something that I don't know what the hell kind of exhibit it was going to be. And you're already in it because of the setting. Whereas in a city, which I used to hate going to museums and as a kid dragging my in New York, you know, our school would go to museums. And even in my 20s, I was trying to, you know, get some culture, learn about something. And I'd go to museums now and then with friends. And I fucking hated it. You're in this modern, ugly piece of shit building designed by an architect that has no real soul to it. And you're there to look at art. It's like you're in the art place to look at art. And so you're immediately like already like conditioned to look at something that's art. And you're just sort of like, okay, here I am looking at art. All right, that's what you do in this in this sterile surrounding. And then a lot of this modern art is shitty anyway. And you just don't, there's no meaning to it. It's just like, it, it kind of reminds me of like when I'm going to see a movie, I don't want to know anything about the movie. Like I want someone who I trust to say, this movie's good. I don't care if it's a comedy or a horror movie. I don't give a shit. Just tell me it's good. Don't tell me anything about it. And when I go, I'm like completely immersed in whatever's happening. And I have no idea what's going to happen. As opposed to, I've seen the preview or someone told me, oh, it's a movie about this guy. He gets divorced and then he gets framed for the murder of his wife and blah, blah, blah. And now like I'm seeing the guy before he gets divorced and I, I don't even really, I'm not really in it because I know what's going to happen because I already know how the story goes and, you know, half the, half the movie, it's already, you know, I basically know what's going to happen. And that's how I feel about like these museums that are museums in a city. Like, oh, I'm going to the modern art museum. Okay. It's like, you know what the movie's going to be. Whereas this thing was like, I was already tripping. I have no idea what this is. I, I'm, it's already a strange place. And we went in and it's this German artist and it's this crazy shit like these TV, TV smashed in with like uh, model cars smashed with like other stuff. And it made me think a couple things like one that, you know, I do these podcasts and it's like, who the fuck am I to do these podcasts? Like I'm talking by myself about my own observations about the world and why am I doing that? Like most people don't do that. They don't record their own thoughts about things. And why should I feel that that is a valid thing to do or a useful thing to do or that anybody would ever listen to it? And when you go and see an exhibit like this guy's crazy exhibit, you realize this guy had no basis for believing that the stuff he was doing was useful or 
whatever. It was totally insane, but it was, I thought it was really good. I thought it was really made some sort of point about modern society, not even a point, but it just gave you a feeling. It gave you sort of a sense of something. And I felt like I had an idea of what he was getting at. And he, but I also felt like he had to just believe that what he was doing had value because otherwise, like who would possibly do something like this? And it just made me realize like, yeah, you just, no one knows, you know, you just, you just put it out there and, and it has meaning for you. And you wonder maybe if someone else will connect with it, but it just, it got me thinking like, oh yeah, like these people are doing the similar thing. Like they're just throwing stuff together. They don't know that they have no basis for believing that. And sometimes you can lament your reach and say, well, I only have, you know, 17,000 followers and a lot of people have a lot more. And, and I don't know how many people listen to this podcast and read my chrysalis.com or my Substacks. But then you think like some of these artists, you know, died. They were way more geniuses than anyone you follow on Twitter, no matter how many followers they have. And some of them died and nobody really even knew anything about their work. And they didn't even know in their entire life that, you know, the work, they never got validated externally in their entire lives by the world until they were dead. And then everyone found out and now they could be, you know, posthumously famous. But what good does that do you? So I think it's lucky to have the, the fact that anyone is listening at all, I think is good. And the last thing is that I take a lot of pictures and I started using the pictures as cover photos for my, the website for chrysalis.com. When I write an article about something, and I'm going to get into a couple of ideas I have, haven't really been finishing them, some of them, I don't know which ones I'll publish, but I have a couple more ideas that I thought were interesting. One is this art thing and, and you know, I need a, a photo for it. And I have a lot of photos over the years of Europe and different parts of, you know, we're hiking in nature and the ocean and have some good photos, but sometimes what I'm trying to say doesn't really capture it. And but a lot of times, like I, I've started taking pictures of art in museums, and I feel like I'm doing that preemptively because I know one of those is going to be the right image for the thing I'm writing about. And you know, art is even more specific than picture of the ocean or nature, which sometimes works for a lot of concepts, but art is very, very specific. And so now I'm looking at this art because I'm using it for my own work. I'm using it to like say some, be a picture of what I'm thinking. The, if you tweet it out, it's that photo that goes out. So people see, you know, the, the title of it and then they see that photo. And so the photo is kind of important for it to say something relevant, mean something relevant, convey something relevant toward what I'm thinking or writing about. And so now I'm looking through these museums with an eye of like, what does this mean? Can I find something that means something that I can use? And it's just kind of transformed my experience of going to a museum. So not only was it cool to be in that museum because it was in the middle of the desert and not like having a movie that gives it away, but also uh, I actually have an interest in museums now where I never did. I thought, you know, I just wanted, when I was young, I was a kid, I just wanted food, you know, where's the restaurant? You know, I, fuck this museum. Things like churches, museums, old things. Um, they had no meaning to me, no interest. I just wanted the food. And now I'm looking through the eye of the camera, like, what does this mean? Can I capture some meaning? And it makes me feel like I'm, you know, doing something creative when I'm doing it. So used to hate museums and now I'm kind of interested. Not, I'm not just going to go to a museum, by the way, like in town probably, but when we're in these cities and it's part of the area, I'll do it. And uh, I've actually enjoyed it the last few times and maybe I'll throw a couple of photos up that, uh, that I took. It. I, one of them, I didn't seem to care at all that I took photos. One of them, they told me to stop, but I'll just give one sample of it. All right. So that was that. That was uh, part of the trip. 
Oh, uh, I got to mention this because this is my title of the podcast. So when we were coming back home, like the last day and talking about we went to Casares, we went to Cuenca, we went to Valencia twice, we went to Mallorca, we went to Seville on the last day. And Heather's like, oh, you know, we're real jet setters. You know, we went to Talwar, we flew into Geneva, went to Talwar, France, we went to D.C., Mexico City, Vegas, Colorado, L.A. She's like, we're real part of the jet set these days. And I was like, well, we're part of the ferry set, actually, because no one who's part of the jet set would be uh, sleeping on that disgusting vinyl lounge with the light on people walking by. So uh, ferry set is going to be, I think, the title of this podcast. But a few other topics. One thing, uh, I'll just get into this. I really got my process this year for picking games against the spread. And it's basically the process I have of writing articles, which is stalled a little bit, but still in process, which is that I basically have ideas and I sometimes talk about them on this podcast. Well, if I'm at it's night and I'm trying to get to sleep and I have an idea, I run down the hall and type it up or write it in my notebook. And then after I've written it down, I will uh, you know, type up a draft of it on Substack or some notes. And usually the, the idea uh, is better in my mind than it is on the page. It's not very coherent. It doesn't really hold together as well as I, I thought it did when I was thinking about it. I probably forgot some of the thoughts I had about it. But then it's just kind of there and I, I work on it for a few days. And if it's bad, I scrap it. But if it gets to a point where I think it's coming together, I send it to Heather and Heather's too busy and doesn't want to deal with it. But she's a good reader. She's a good editor. She knows enough about what I'm saying to give me feedback, but not so much that, that she has strong opinions about it. She's pretty unsparing on the feedback. And then I incorporate the feedback, which is usually good, and then give it to her again. And she sometimes sends more, sometimes says it's good. And if I'm satisfied with it, then I publish it. And it just got me thinking like that wine guy, right? Like you have this raw material, which is the soil and the grapes and my raw material is my idea. And then you refine it a bit in the tank and it ferments and it ferments and send it to Heather and process it a bit. And then hopefully, you know, in the end you have a product that, you know, someone else finds useful, find some value in. And so that's my process for writing these long pieces that I do. Some of them aren't that long, but it's pieces that I write. And I was thinking, why not do this for the betting for writing about my picks in the, the million, I don't know what it's called, the Circa Million, I think it's called, where you pick five games against the spread and you can win a million dollars or more if you have the best record. I thought about doing it algorithmically, like getting a bunch of stuff in a spreadsheet, but I couldn't really scrape data that well. And I didn't want to manually edit the, manually add in all of the yards per play data and all the stuff I was thinking about putting in there. And I just said, you know what, other people are doing that. That's basically taking the past performance and sort of figuring out what it portends for the future. It didn't seem that interesting to me. And, and I didn't have the technical chops to, to make it easy to you know have it just flow through a spreadsheet and just have it spit out numbers. And so I decided I was just going to do it the way I'm doing my writing, which is just to go in every day, the raw material, my leans, my you know read, read the lines and kind of note to myself or even jot down what I think on Monday, come back Tuesday, come back Wednesday and go through the week little by little and just see, you know, intend to get clear on it and let it ferment, not force it. And then by the end of the week, hopefully I'll have five picks that I feel decent about. And this is kind of what Damon, my brother and I did for the first two years. I wrote the column in 1999, 2000, and we, we picked at 58% over, you know, 500 games, which is almost impossible to do. Could have been luck. could have been small sample, but 500 games is not that small of a sample. 58% is pretty tough to get to. 
and that's what we did. We'd call, you know, get on the phone on Monday and talk about the games and the lines. And then we'd talk about it again Tuesday and talk about it again Wednesday. And I'd write up the column. And I feel like that process, I didn't give the full fermentation it's due. I was just busy writing up the previous week's games at Red Wire. And then uh, sometimes I wrote it up on Wednesday and by Thursday or Friday, I got clear on a game or two that that I wasn't clear on when I wrote it up. But then suddenly on Friday, I'm like, oh, this is the right team. This is this is right. It would come to me late, but it was already in there. I didn't want to mess with it. And you can't really change it once you've submitted it. Otherwise, you're like opening yourself up to wholesale changes for everybody. staff picks. It would have been a whole disaster. So I had to leave it. So now I can really let these things kind of ferment through the whole week and make my pick. So that's going to be my process. And I wrote about that. We'll see how it goes. I don't know that this is applicable, you know, creative process kind of translating to a predicting football games process, but because it sort of worked, a similar process worked for me with my brother 22 years ago, thinking maybe it can work. And then also uh, I'm thinking maybe I'm going to do this, just do a, uh, a sports only podcast, uh, but not, not real man would it'll be on the, uh, on the real man sports Substack instead because it's kind of it's kind of why i split up the sites too it's like it's kind of weird to write about like totalitarianism and the next week you're like which fantasy sleeper should i pick up it just really it just kind of i know a lot of people who listen to this have both interests but i think like you know there's a lot of people only have one of the interests and since this podcast has gone into the totalitarianism uh direction i think that the other one will be the fantasy one and who knows which one will get more traction but I think I should split them up. So I think I'm going to do another podcast this week that's going to be sports related. Got a lot to say on that. I wrote a lot of columns for realmansports.substack.com last week. I was writing them in Mallorca with a beer in my hand. It was very relaxing and it was just flowing out pretty easily. All right, a couple more things. The Golden Goose on Twitter asked me, why don't I talk about Djokovic and the US Open? And I probably should have talked about that last week or, or two weeks ago. But obviously it's a travesty that he's not playing in the US Open. Nadal just lost. So it's like whoever wins it has an asterisk, right? Because they're not playing against the best player. I'd be one thing if he got injured, which is, I guess, part of the skill set staying healthy. But best player in the world who should be the number one seed is not eligible to play in this tournament. And for what reason? It's just politics. Obviously, he's not a threat to anybody. Um, the CDC themselves admitted that unvaccinated people don't spread the virus any more than the vaccinated do. And I've actually seen some studies showing that actually the vaccinated hold on to it longer and are therefore more susceptible to spreading it. But either way, Djokovic is not a risk. He's healthy as a horse. He's already had COVID, so he has natural immunity on every level. Like there's no medical, I mean, it's dumb for me even to go over this because everybody knows, even the, the most ardent Djokovic hater knows there's no medical reason for this. It's just purely politics. And you're basically taking, you know, a guy who is arguably the greatest tennis player of all time, one of the greatest athletes of the 21st century, and he's on the quest to have the most Grand Slams ever. And you're altering this history and denying him the chance to play at his late peak to do the thing that he is so great at due to politics. And you have a bunch of midwits making these decisions, a bunch of people who will never in their lives even sniff what it takes to be Djokovic. And none of us will. I mean, to be that great at something, to be that dedicated, to give what he's, you have to give to be that, you know, to be Tom Brady or Michael Jordan or Djokovic. Um, we, it's just impossible for a regular person to understand that for these midwits to prevent him from doing what he's doing at the, at the level that he can do it while he can still do it while he's in his mid thirties while going for a historic, you know, grand slam record. It's just, it's, it's a disgrace. It's just, it's fucking disgraceful. It's a disgrace to humanity. It kind of reminds me of the Albert Einstein quote that great spirits will always be violently opposed by mediocre minds. And it's just spot on because 
He's a great spirit. It's like Muhammad Ali not wanting to serve in Vietnam and what they did to him, put him in jail and not letting him do what he was gr the greatest at. It's kind of like Ali. Djokovic, fortunately, isn't in jail, but he's, you know, again, not allowed to apply his craft at the highest level. And it's just, it's just sort of a lose-lose when it's someone of that quality and that level is denied by a bunch of fucking midwit petty losers. And unfortunately, it's you know, the U.S. government and I think the U.S. TA or whatever should put up a bigger stink. And I don't know who's involved in all of the politics of it, but what a travesty and what a, what a disaster for tennis to not really have a greatest of all time that you can measure with the grand slams anymore and tennis history, just, just such an epic fail on every level. And I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I, I could have talked about it last week. It's a bit obvious. I mean, I just don't see the other side of it. The last thing I want to talk about is something that got me thinking the other day, you know, I get a little stressed out. I'm on Twitter probably too much. And I follow a lot of accounts that talk about how things are falling apart and they are falling apart. You know, energy is a big problem and the financial system is on the brink dollars getting super strong. This is putting a lot of pressure on other economies. Their dollar debts are getting more expensive to service and there's going to be second, third order effects. But I read a lot of this kind of stuff and I talk about it on the podcast. And I do think you have to be careful a bit about extrapolating bad trends that are real trends, real things that are happening and extrapolating them indefinitely. It's kind of like the, the climate change panickers. Oh, well, if the ice melted at this rate for 10 years, then in 30 years, we'll all be dead. You know, the seasonal polar ice caps have more ice now than they did five years ago. You know, the idea that for a certain period, this happened. So let's just extrapolate that indefinitely. I think there was a joke about how the Bitcoiners used to say that at this rate, you know, Bitcoin will use all the energy in the world by 2035. Uh, one of the Bitcoiners would say, it's like, at this rate, you know, that baby that you're pregnant with will be 10,000 pounds by, you know, 2035. You know, no, the, the baby slows down growing. So the, the idea that like something that's a trend that's happening for now is just going to continue at this pace indefinitely. That's just foolish first order thinking. Not only do trends not continue indefinitely, but in fact, it gets harder and harder because there's second order effects. So for example, if I start losing weight and I lose 10 pounds, I get from 185 to 175. Well, that might be, that won't be that easy, but it'd be easy-ish. But getting from 175 to 165 is going to be harder because my body's going to be holding onto that weight tighter. There's a second order effect of having lost the weight. There's going to be resistance. And there's second order effects of, well, if the climate warms, then the trees are going to grow more and plants are going to grow more. And then the plants are going to sequester more carbon. Natural systems tend toward homeostasis. There's always a second order effect that balances out the first order effect. Or I won't say always, but there's quite often in natural systems, a tendency toward homeostasis. And so the trend is not only likely to run out because trends don't continue indefinitely, they also are likely to run out because it becomes harder to maintain the further you go. You know, climate change is one. You know, COVID was another. Oh, if people start dying at this rate by, you know, pretty soon in six months, everyone will be dead. Or this whole idea that whatever's happened so far, we'll take a model, we'll model this out, this linear, we'll just linear first order thinking and we'll just model this indefinitely, the same trend. And the world just doesn't work like that, right? And I think I can sometimes be guilty of it. And I watched this video by this something Melbourne, Escape Melbourne. It's like a, it's, it's a Twitter site where they're like, you know, don't trust the, uh, the institutions that we have and they take them down. There's a guy on it, this like British guy or Irish guy or whatever. And he's saying, stock up on food now, get your food supplies because winter's coming. The fuel's going to be, a t you know, so expensive. 
and they're not going to be able to deliver food to grocery stores. And then the grocery stores are going to be overrun and none of these products that you're going to want are going to be available. So go out now while you still can and get as much food as you possibly can. And look, I, I don't think there's anything wrong if you have a little extra cash to put $500 worth of non-perishable food in your pantry. I think that's smart actually. But I was just laughing to myself because I'm thinking if people took his advice, then the same exact thing would happen. It would just happen sooner, right? Because instead of waiting for the supplies to run out, uh, they would just take, they would just hoard all the supplies and they would run out faster, right? I mean, it's not going to change the result. I mean, somebody's going to be without food. Maybe the guy who watched his video will have the food. It's called Rise Up Melbourne. But, you know, it's <laughs> go, saying go to the grocery store and get as much food as you can is not really advice to prevent a problem. It may prevent a problem for you, but well, you're my viewer, so I hope that it prevents the problem for you, even though it's going to exacerbate the situation for everyone else. Now, again, personally, you're not responsible for everyone else. You're responsible for yourself and your family. And storing a little bit of non-parasol food is probably a good idea. But it also got me thinking, like, the idea that this energy crisis is just going to play out in the worst case scenario, even though I'm attracted to those kind of extrapolations rather than the institution one saying, oh, you better eat the bugs because if you eat meat, you're going to boil the oceans or whatever. I'm attracted to, oh, well, this energy is going to be a crisis. We're all, we're all doomed because I think most of these crises are the reaction to what's going on, not what's actually going on. And so I do think that this sort of you know, sanctioning Russia and then having Russia retaliate by not sending any more gas to Europe is a man-made crisis that didn't need to happen. And I think that those are usually the worst. It's the man-made ones, not the uh, natural ones that we really have to worry about. But also I'm guilty of the same sort of first order linear thinking because like if there is a fuel crisis, well, what's going to happen? Well, they're already starting. It's not good for the environment, but they're starting to burn more coal. They may start to buy energy from other sources. They may have to innovate in some way. So there's always second order effects from this too. You can't just linearly extrapolate just because it serves the fears that you're afraid of. Like I am way more afraid of what our politicians and our policymakers are going to do than anything that's coming from the climate or anything that's coming from, I'm not afraid of ISIS, I'm not afraid of COVID, although that, that did obviously come from a lab, but so they did that too, but it's the response to COVID that did so much destruction. It's the forcing the vaccine, it's the lockdowns, it's keeping kids out of school that did so much damage. It's not the virus that did most of the damage in my opinion. So I'm more afraid of the response. So I'm naturally more likely to extrapolate bad decision-making by these fucking midwit policymakers and say, this is gonna doom us all. But even though I do think that is the more apt fear, the more appropriate fear to have than the fear that the virus is going to kill you, I'm still guilty of the same sort of first order reasoning. Yeah, these, these people are going to try to take over and use the COVID vaccine pass to take over. But what's going to happen? Well, people are going to get pissed off about it. They're going to speak out about it. The policy is going to fail. You're going to make people even less trusting in institutions, less likely to do the same thing. So there are second order effects in human affairs too. If you want to take over the world as an evil mastermind to control everybody or whatever your stupid agenda is, you are not going to be playing 11 dimensional chess. You are going to encounter second order effects and problems too. It is not easy to control the world and control people. These people are also natural phenomena. Yeah, I just realized that I need to sometimes correct myself from going down that road. Again, I do think the more legitimate concern is these bad actors who are going to use crises, you know, whatever crisis happens, 9-11 or pandemic or whatever it is, regardless of the cause of the crisis, to cement more power and to do bad things and to enact their agenda and take advantage of a crisis. I do think that is the thing to be afraid of, not the crisis itself. But 
even with even in that case, remember there's going to be second, third order effects that mitigate that, and not to be unnecessarily doom and gloom about it, and realize that most of these stupid takeover plans they may have some success at first, but they'll fail. That doesn't mean not to be vigilant and not to speak out about them. It just means not to be so worried about them. You know the way that these climate change people are positive the world is going to be underwater in ten years and. You know, I just, again, it's, it's certainly possible, but I just don't see strong evidence that that's the case. All right, that's going to do it. If you enjoy this podcast, please spread the word. Also feel free to leave a comment on iTunes, a good rating. I think it helps. I think it helps during searches. Spread the word, uh, let people know about it. Yeah, that's it. Till next time.